Praise God. Good morning. Continue in our study on the questions of Jesus. We've got this week and next week. And uh, that'll be it. And we'll start up a video series by uh, John Bevere called uh, uh, Undercover. It's a tremendous, tremendous study. So we're looking forward to that. So if you have uh, uh, your Bibles, I need somebody to get me John 670. Uh, Dennis, uh, John 5:22 and 27, Daniel, Matthew 9:6, Eric, John 5:21, Rich, Revelations 3:5, Don. Getting a bit of a ring on that. So last week we looked at uh, what does it avail a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul. We saw that uh, there's probably a primary emphasis on material uh, wealth and greed and covetousness, but the definition of world goes way beyond that. And uh, we have to be very, very careful about where our affections lie and what we pursue in our lives. And so I want to look at one this morning that is uh, uh, kind of a two-edged study. Uh, It's a very, very interesting question. Uh, Definitely worth kicking around a little bit. John 670. Jesus answered them and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? That's a very interesting thing to begin to contemplate this question. There is one side of this question that is a theological riddle that has plagued the church for centuries and been a center point, a centerpiece of argument and debate uh, throughout the epoch of the church. And uh, this is the question of God's sovereign choice versus man's human will. And so this is, this opens an incredible can of worms. We're not going to delve into it too deeply. We're going to look at it a little bit, just kind of superficial scratch the surface enough to orient us. And then the other question, the other side of the question is the very human uh, question of desertion and of abandonment and of betrayal. And so we're going to look at both of these, and I want to start with the theological side first. Why would Jesus... Choose a devil to be his disciple. And bear in mind, this isn't something that he discovered after the fact. Uh, John 6, 64. I don't think I gave that to anybody. Somebody read that. John 6, 64. Uh, Hoyt, if you'd read that for us. This is clearly uh, a statement of precognition. This very question that Jesus asks is uh, fairly early in the development of the disciples. He has laid down some issues of the kingdom. There have been a number that have abandoned uh, uh, him and his preaching. And then he turns and speaks to his disciples about this. Uh, uh, But we're not real, real far on in the gospel account yet. And already he's identified uh, that one is the devil. But uh, listen to uh, verse 64. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who would not believe and who it was who would betray him. There's never any doubt in Jesus' mind. It was never any guesswork. He knew Judas was going to betray him. And yet he chose him. 
That's a bit of a mind bender, isn't it? So what on earth is behind that? Just just throw it up open for a minute, Mark. So ultimately, you're saying he had a redemptive purpose. Very, very good. Mike. Gave Judas a chance and gave him a choice. Pete. Okay, so we, we see a pattern that God, uh, uh, knowing that there are catastrophic results down the line coming, still pushes it through and uh, uh, not only permits it, but designs it perhaps. That's kind of a spooky thought. Okay, and Pete throws in the spin perhaps that it's to instruct us something that we can learn from it. So that's a thought, okay? Any other thoughts there, <laughs> Mick? Okay, very good. Scripture must be fulfilled. And so this actually was uh, part of the fulfillment of Scripture. Okay, so let's take this thoughts, the, especially the last two, and uh, think, think the implications of that through. Okay, so here's God. I have a plan, and I'm going to bring the Redeemer to the earth. And in my plan, he's got to be betrayed. This will be one of the marks that this is truly the Messiah, truly part of my plan. And so what poor sucker am I going to choose to be the betrayer? And what poor sucker will it have been better for him never to have been born? 
Oh, I think I'll do it to Judas. See, we're getting into some heavy ground here. Dennis. Okay, uh, so Dennis says that there is an attention here, and he's getting very close to the real issue, is that there's a tension that exists, that yes, uh, God did harden Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh had already begun making decisions and uh, uh, had willfully put himself in a place where God would harden his heart. Dave. Okay, very, very good. So Dave uh, points up that we all have this capacity in our hearts. Okay, uh, Carol. Okay, so he's, uh, precognition doesn't mean that God set it up to happen that way, but God, knowing that it would happen that way, is able to turn circumstances to his plan and purpose. See, we're all very good Armenians here this morning, and I, I'm very proud of you. You, uh, you all have a, a pretty good grasp on the pretzel here. The Calvinists would argue that Judas was preordained to reprobation, that he was just like most of the world, he was already chosen by God uh, to go to hell. Before Christ came in time or in history, the will, the sovereign will of God was already uh, set in place. And Jesus' role in the atonement was the act of redemption, but it has nothing to do with uh, choosing or election. That's God's choice. Jesus doesn't choose who goes to hell. God, God did that before Jesus ever came in time or in history. And so, in other words, choosing Judas as a disciple was secondary to God choosing him to damnation. This is the kind of schizophrenic thinking that Calvinism is all about. Okay? And uh, as you begin to read through the works of John Calvin, we'll open for questions in a bit. Uh, as you begin to read through his works, he, it's incredible what you have to do to arrive at the conclusions that he arrives at. And it all starts with this core question of how sovereign is the sovereign will of God? Because what he can't come to grips with is this tension that Carol described uh, where God has a will, man has a will, and God moves through the, uh, the maze of human will to accomplish his will. Because he will not violate our will. Okay, let's, uh, 
Let's look at a couple of scriptures. And I gave some. Did I give 2 Corinthians 5.19? Let me line these up as well. 2 Corinthians 5.19. Mark, 1 Timothy 2, 4 to 6. Uh, Casey, uh, Noel, get me Titus 2.11. Jake, get me 1 John 4.14. 4, uh, Joel, get me 1 John 2.2. 2. Hebrews 2.9. Somebody over here, uh, Owen. Uh, Romans 5.18 to 21. Uh, Amador. Okay, uh, the first thing we see uh, is that, so, so let me backtrack and, and reiterate that statement. The Calvinist believes that Jesus has no role in, uh, in the process of election. Election is a very biblical term, okay? And what we're looking at in microcosm when we ask the question, Jesus chose Judas. That's, we're talking about election there. Jesus chose him. But he knew he was a devil. And so this is this tension, this extremely uh, difficult uh, dichotomy that's hard to come to grips with. And so the, the Calvinist, to work around that, says, well, uh, Jesus, Jesus wasn't really choosing there. The choice had already been made. God had already elected him to damnation. And so it really wouldn't have mattered what, uh, what Jesus chose at that point. Okay, so just a couple of scriptures here. John 5, 22 and 27. Okay, God judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Okay, and it gives him the authority to execute judgment. And so, very clearly, the, the thought that Jesus was not, or is not, uh, involved in the whole process of men's eternal destiny and uh, God's elect purposes is uh, absolute insanity. Matthew 9, 6. That you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. Okay, this is, these are scriptures that fly in the face of Calvinist theology that Jesus plays no role in this. His act was purely redemptive. The Father, before the foundations of the earth and before time and history, before Jesus ever set foot on earth, had already made choices about every eternal destiny. It's already all planned and orchestrated. Okay, and so in order to, to make this work logically, then you've got to pull Jesus out of that equation and simply make him the sacrifice lamb with no other role. But the scriptures refute this. John 5, 21. The son quickens whom he will. Whom he will. Okay, Revelation 3, 5. Okay, he who overcometh, I will not blot his name out. I will not execute the judgment and write his name out of the book of life. Without wading too deeply into the whole argument, uh, we must conclude that Calvin was off on his notion of reprobation and eternal destiny. Again, you've got to understand that his starting point in the entire argument was the sovereignty of God. Uh, God 
is so completely sovereign and has not abdicated any of that sovereignty under any circumstances uh, that everything, everything that happens has to flow out of his will. So if a person is going to hell, it has to flow out of his will. If a person refuses to get saved, that has to flow out of his will. If, uh, uh, if the vast majority of humanity goes to hell, that has to flow out of his will because he's sovereign. You can't go against the will of God. See, that's where the whole pretzel of Calvinistic logic starts. And you can see that if you take something to such an extreme, if you take any truth to such an extreme, you're going to end up off. Okay? And so, uh, I don't want to go too far with this, but I just want to draw your attention to a few scriptures. Let's have 2 Corinthians 5.19. Okay, that Jesus has come uh, uh, to reconcile all things and the world to God. 1 Timothy 2, 4 to 6. He desires all men to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. Who gave himself ransom for all. One man, one mediator between God and man, Jesus, who gave himself ransom for all. To be testified in due time. Okay? Uh, Titus 2.11. The grace of God has appeared uh, for salvation to all. A-L-L. 1 John 4.14. We have seen and do testify that God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Of the world. Not just of the few that God chose out of the world, but the world. Okay? Uh, that was 1 John 4.14? Or 2.2? 2, 2. 1 John 2.2. 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only. But for the whole world, this one really ties Calvin in knots. And when he comes to this in his commentaries, he won't even discuss it. He won't even discuss it. Just won't even go there. Because here is a Christian saying, but he didn't just die for us. He died for everybody. Okay? Hebrews 2.9. He should taste death for every man. Romans 5, 18 to 21. Okay, in summary, this is uh, Paul's discussion of the way that Adam spiritually poisoned all of mankind by his transgression. And God spiritually has made a way of redemption for all mankind through Jesus Christ. By one man, sin came into the world. By one man, redemption comes into the world. 
Okay? And he, he, uh, goes through this discussion at length, uh, but the whole question, uh, uh, that is, uh, uh, you know, the whole issue that is brought into clarity by these verses is the fact that God's, God's will, if you want to talk about God's sovereign will, God's sovereign choice is that everybody's saved. He never made a choice that 80% of the world go to hell. That was not his choice. His will is that all be saved. And the, the, the act of Christ's crucifixion was not just for an elect. Okay? It was for all the world. Okay? And this is the foundation of every other issue that revolves around Calvinism versus Arminianism. Jesus, in one question, poses this tension between God's choice, God's sovereign will, I choose that you all be saved, and the element of free will that plays in every human heart. I chose you, you specifically, Jesus is saying to Judas, essentially. I know you more intimately than you know yourself. My will is that you be redeemed and restored from your fallen condition to be to become a son of God with an unspeakable eternal destiny. My will is that none should perish. This came up when we first asked the question, why would God choose uh, Judas? Because God wanted to redeem Judas. Bottom line, he chose Judas for the same reason he chose us. But there's this issue of human will. But one of you is a devil. One of you is making choices completely contrary to what I want to do in your life. I want to help you. I want to redeem you. I want to preserve you. You apparently don't want that. Could I make you serve me? Could I make you a Christian? Is it possible for God to do that? Of course. Will he? No. Can you choose eternal life? Yes. Can you choose eternal damnation? Yes. And it comes down to your choice. I chose 12 of you. One of you decided not to go that way. The conflict between your will and my will. And I allow your will to remain sovereign. We'll open it in just a second. This is a microcosm. This is a microcosmic view of the biblical doctrine of election and free will. Okay? I have chosen you in Christ. When you read Ephesians 1, see, uh, some scriptures get real confusing. Because you start reading about God choosing us and God electing us. And God pre destinating us and you read these scriptures and you go I don't get this I have a free will if God preordained me to be this way where's my free will fit into this what you have to understand is that every discussion of election predestination preordination every election every discussion of election is in Christ okay that's the phrase that you gotta you've got to uh, grasp and define Preordination through. In other words, God doesn't elect Don. God elected Christ to be the redemptive organ or the redemptive action. And all those that are in Christ are elect in him. Okay? It's kind of like, you know, to put it in some kind of human terms that you can come to grips with. uh, We elect a president. And he brings on board with him his cabinet. We didn't elect the cabinet. We elected the president. When God chose, he chose Christ to be the redemptive organ for all mankind. And anyone that is in Christ is therefore elect in him. Okay, so if you're in Christ, 
your elect. And when Paul uses the term, the elect, the chosen, he always encapsulates that in Christ. It's always in Christ. Because that's where the election comes down. And then as we hitch our wagon to Jesus, we come in to the elect. Okay? We are not elected to be in Christ, but we are elected because we are in Christ. And as long as we're found vitally joined to him, or in other words, as long as we are in Christ, then we have life. Why did Jesus choose Judas? For the simple reason that he desired his salvation. He chose Judas for the same reason he chose any of us, grace. He went to the cross for the joy set before him, knowing that the vast majority of humans would repudiate that, but nonetheless doing it willingly, joyfully, because he wanted to give them the opportunity to be redeemed. Okay? So I saw some hands, thoughts. Jeff? This is an interesting thought. This comes from doing many drugs through the years. You have you have thoughts like these. Okay. <laughs> no, no, that's a good thought. Good thought. Go ahead. Well, the reason why I say this is because the kind of thought I'd have had. <laughs> Okay, so you've already actually touched on the scripture we're going to look at in this discussion. But Jeff is saying, uh, you know, God being sovereign could save us all a lot of troubles. And he harkens back to the parable of the wheat and tares. And he says, you know, uh, if, you could, if you could single out and kill the firstborn in every, uh, of every Egyptian household, you certainly could single out the tares and pull them up without damaging the wheat. But God brought to mind, in Jeff's mind, what if one of those tares becomes wheat in the process? And this is the key right here, is that we are dealing with something that God has said, I'm not going to violate human will. You can't violate mine. I won't violate yours. Because I've made you in my image, and I have put an amazing seal on the will of humanity. Okay? Daniel. Well, that was one thing I struggled with. 
What if you weren't chosen? The truth of the matter is anyone who embraces the doctrine of eternal security, which is rooted in this very question of election, the whole thought, to my thinking, is very discomforting. It's supposed to bring this security. I'm secure now. I'm in Jesus. But the problem is Calvin himself made a very strong issue of the fruit. That's how you know you're elect is by the fruit. So here I am. I've made a choice. I'm trying to live for Jesus. But I notice in myself something that's not quite right. Am I chosen? Am I elect? I got a problem here. I thought I was elect. Why is this in my life? Now I'm shaking. Now, I don't know if I'm elect. Maybe really I'm going to hell and I'm wasting my time going to church. I think I'll go down to Whiskey Row and forget about it. Okay, Pete. But the Calvinists would say, that's my point. <laughs> Carol. Yeah, it calls the question of justice. It calls God into the question regarding justice. Casey. Okay. 
Okay, very good. So then all, we, we again raise the issue that potential betrayal is in all of us. Noel. greatest opportunity he could possibly have, he blew by his own choices. I, I, I do not believe that Judas hooked his wagon to Jesus with the uh, notion of betrayal initially. I don't think he said, oh, I'm going to get in close to Jesus so I can betray him for 30 pieces of silver. No, no, what happened was carrying the money bag began to work on the dark side of his character. And he began to think more and more about money and all the money is being wasted and all, all, the, all the possible power they really could have if Jesus would just, you know, rise up. And uh, little by little, he let that thing begin, begin to grip him. Because ultimately, the only motive that we have recorded in Scripture is 30 pieces of silver. There's lots of conjecture of why G- Judas did it. But the only motive scripturally is 30 pieces of silver. So ultimately, that's what won out in his own personal battle. Bear. Absolutely. But when we see God's you know, sovereign choice into it as a believer, it, it makes us unbelievably, uh, it should make us unbelievably humble and grateful because our free will had a part, but he chose us. We didn't choose him. And he, and he knew us while, while, you know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the part that God played in our salvation Yes. So, uh, with that in mind, I want to look at some scriptures. Somebody give me Second Peter one ten. Okay, Pete, uh, Eric, get me Second Peter three seventeen and eighteen. Daniel, get me uh, Proverbs twenty four three. Uh, Dennis, get me uh, Matthew twenty four ten to twelve. Mark, get me Mark thirteen twenty two. I need Acts. Mike, get me Acts twenty twenty nine to thirty. 1 Corinthians 11, 18, and 19. Uh, Joel. 
2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, Hoyt, Galatians 1, 6 to 7, Don, Philippians 3, 17 to 19, uh, Pete. Okay, so Bear brings up the issue, and this brings us to the human side of this equation. And that is that uh, the reality is that the betrayal of Judas is something that is so common in human experience that every single one of us has to, as Bear suggested, examine our own selves and say, well, is it I? That, uh, you know, once you understand this incredible capacity of free will and the incredible influence of the flesh, the world, and the devil, uh, you begin to see how desperately dependent you are on the grace of God. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the mercy of God that makes us Christians. And every one of us has a little Judas in us that would love to rise up and, uh, and rationalize our actions and convince us we're doing the right thing in betraying Jesus. Every single one of us has that capacity. And so you gotta, you got to ponder this. This is an amazingly revealing statement. Satan goes to church. He don't go to the bars. He don't worry about that. He goes to church. Satan spends most of his time in church. And if he could weasel his way into one of the twelve, how, how much easier could he weasel his way into one of us? Right? This is frightening to ponder. Second Peter 1.10. Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Isn't that an interesting statement? Well, if I'm elected, it's sure. No, you better make sure it's sure. Okay? Because the election is in Christ. And as long as you choose to be in Christ, your election is sure. But the day you choose not to, your election is no longer sure. This is a powerful statement. And he says, therefore, give it all the more diligence, man, because you have to recognize the peril that exists for you. 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. Ye therefore, therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. You need to be careful lest you fall away from your own steadfastness. Here's this picture, this image of being planted and built on a firm foundation, steadfast, unmovable. But you better be sure that you don't move. Careful about your own steadfastness. Proverbs 24, 3. No, that's not. Is that Proverbs 24, 3? Yeah? Yeah. Well, my Bible must be different. (laughs) No, I just wrote it it wrong. That that actually happens from time to time. It's amazing. So uh, it says, guard your heart was the scripture I was looking for. Guard your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. Guard your heart. 14, is it? Proverbs 14? 423. See, it's just dyslexia. Proverbs 423. Read that for us. Yeah. Okay. And so we are warned that we have to be the guardians of our own election and our own relationship with Jesus. Additionally, we need to note that uh, 
not only are we in jeopardy, but the people we least expect to be in jeopardy are in jeopardy. See, here's Judas. He would have had to have been the most trusted man in the group to be the treasurer. He's the only office holder of all 12 disciples. He is the treasurer. He's the only office holder, and he's the one that blows it. This is a remarkable thought. See, we're so often surprised uh, by backsliding and rebellion and betrayal, and we're shocked to hear that this pastor has uh, failed or this uh, leader of the fellowship left or whatever it may be. But it's so clear from Scripture that this is what we should expect, that this is the nature of the kingdom. And this gets into what uh, Jeff was talking about, uh, that if we have time, we'll look at in a moment. But this whole question of the wheat and the tares and the reality that in the kingdom of God, it's not, you know, there aren't this, this, there isn't this echelon of Christians that are infallible and that can never screw up and can never make bad choices. And in truth, uh, from this text alone, we can draw the conclusion that sometimes the people that are most danger are the leaders. Okay, uh, Matthew 24, 10 to 12. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another, and many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus is talking here about the end times reality and the climate, and he says it's going to get so bad that, that many are going to be offended and they're going to rise up and they're going to speak against the things of God, against the church, uh, and uh, their love will grow cold. And he's talking here about people that have a real relationship with God. But because of the dynamics of the hour, uh, what's way down in there begins to surface and reveal itself. Mark 13, 22. False Christs and false prophets will rise with signs and wonders and, if possible, seduce and deceive even the elect. And so this is the imagery of, of people riding up, rising up in uh, some kind of, of leadership position. They have great influence. There's miracles rolling off of their ministries. And they're going to draw men away to themselves. Okay? Uh, Acts 20, 29 and 30. This is Paul's uh, parting words to the Ephesian leadership, the elders of Ephesus. And he's saying, be on guard. As soon as I leave, wolves are going to try to come in from within, uh, from without, and some are going to rise up from within, from your own number. And they're going to try to draw men away to themselves. They're going to try to deceive. They have their own agenda. They have their own purpose. And uh, this, is, this, is, this is to be expected. This is, shouldn't shock you. This shouldn't surprise you. You shouldn't go, oh, I just can't believe that. Why can't you believe that? I'm telling you right now, it's exactly what's going to happen. 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 19. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And if you trace it back to the beginning of the discussion in Corinthians, he's talking about uh, people that are saying, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I follow this leader, I follow that leader. So he says there's schisms that start to form around personalities. So he says, I hear that this is going on in your midst. In part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you. For there must also be factions among you. 
that those who are approved may be recognized among you. He's alluding here to a process that God puts in place. He says this, this process has to go down. There will be people that will rise up. They will draw people away from the truth as they know it. The truth of the gospel once delivered. And they will be drawn away because of what's in their heart. And they'll follow after men that are unrighteous because of what's in their heart. And they'll leave the kingdom because of what's in their heart. And this is God's process of saying, see, this is just my sorting out. This is the way I reveal what your heart really is. Okay? And he says, this must happen. This is God-ordained. 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 19. I'm sorry, we just had that. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 and 15. Paul is almost casual. He's almost blasé about it. He says, you know, this isn't surprising that these false people will be in our midst. Satan himself is a deceiver and transforms himself into a messenger of light. He pretends to have the righteousness and, and reality, and that's how he deceives people. And so it's a small thing that his, his messengers would do the same thing and use the same strategy. Rise up from within. So this isn't surprising at all. This is to be expected given the nature of the enemy. Galatians 1, 6 and 7. I marvel that you're so soon led astray from the gospel that uh, we've delivered to you and led into another gospel, which isn't really another gospel at all. He says, but th- this isn't surprising uh, that men will do this, that men will rise up and they'll preach something else to you and try to draw you away. Uh, Philippians 3, 17 and 19, 17 to 19. For many walk, and I tell you, weeping, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross. This is an amazing statement because it's very clear by the statement that I'm weeping for these men, that he's talking about men that have abandoned the faith. He's talking about men that he had relationship with. And I tell you, weeping, that they have become the enemies of the cross. It's profound. We're talking about Judas. First John two nineteen. I didn't give that one out. Okay. Okay. So uh, what we're seeing very, very clearly is that in this scenario with Jesus and Judas, we are seeing the very nature of the kingdom. We are seeing the very reality of uh, betrayal that is inevitable. And unavoidable in the kingdom of God. And it shouldn't be something that unsettles your faith. It shouldn't be something that blows your mind. It should be something that you simply are prepared for and know that this this is going to happen. It's going to happen. It's not surprising at all. Matthew 13, 24 to 30. Somebody get that for me, uh, Casey. This is the parable that Jeff alluded to earlier. Wheat and the tares. 
13, 24 to 30. Okay, Jesus says this is the nature of the kingdom of God. He says the man went out, sowed a field. As time went on, the crops began to pop up through the soil, and the servant noticed that there were tears amongst the wheat. And so his first question was to question God, to question the the farmer. Wait a minute. I thought you selected good people. I I thought you had a hand in this. Well, I didn't sow this. This is something the enemy has done. This is something the devil did. He came in amongst my planting, and he started to do his little work. The devil goes to church. He says, but uh, you just leave him alone. That's going to happen. you got to let that happen, and you got to let that grow. And as Jeff uh, said earlier, he says uh, there's a possibility in the process that some of those tares will be miraculously transformed to wheat. And so you just leave that alone. Furthermore, you can do enormous damage by uprooting and casting things out. The next thing you know, you got an inquisition on your hands. The next thing you know, you got a crusade on your hands. And, and you've got a panel of men who are choosing who's going to live and who's going to die. He says, no, you just leave it alone. I'll sort it out for you. That's the bottom line. I'll sort it out for you. So sometimes it takes incredible patience to wait for God to do that. You know somebody's squirrely and you're going, kill them, kill them, kill them, off for their heads. And God's saying, wait, because I've got to do some work here. And there's some revealing that has to go on. And so you just leave it alone. Let me sort it out. Okay, questions, thoughts. Uh, We'll close. Mike. And uh, we found out that, um, at least back in northern New Jersey, I'm sure this is their strategy, the Unification Church will send families into churches, uh, save churches, and try to cause upheaval and try to get the church to fall. Wow. They did this to her church. Wow. They sent a family in there. uh, Mike says he has relatives back east uh, that are involved in the Unification Church. He has relatives that go to a church. uh, uh, This is two sets of relatives. Yeah, yeah. So their experience, what came to light was that part of the strategies of the Moonies is to send families into evangelical churches to, to disrupt it. And so the problem was that these tares that the enemy sowed amongst the wheat uh, started getting sick. <laughs> <laughs> and so the tares that were sown started to turn into wheat. And they started to get delivered from Mooniism. Okay. Uh, Owen. One of the things uh, growing up in uh, the home I did, my father uh, went to South.
Southwestern Baptist Bible College before he got saved. And, um... <laughs> His father went to the Southwestern Baptist Bible College before he got saved. Exactly. It's God's choosing. It's theological victimization. Okay, that's all we've got time for. We'll pick it up next week.